I was running for the door. Had to find the passage back to the place I was before. Relax at the night band. We are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like. But you can never leave. Welcome to the Hotel California. Such a lovely place. Such a lovely face. They're living it up at the Hotel California. What a nice surprise! Bring your alibis. How many of you have actually heard the words to that song to see exactly what it was telling you? Um, it's quite interesting, right? Well, welcome to the Tory Sess Show. It's the 23rd of March. Damn, there goes March. April is coming. <laughs> and boy, is it going out like a lion, isn't it? We've got them trying to grab the guns as soon as possible. They're getting lawsuits across the nation from average people. And you know what the good thing is? It doesn't matter if the lawsuit doesn't pan out for you. It doesn't matter if you don't get a win. You know what matters? The response you get. Because after you get that response, there's already a judgment and it tells you why. Why? So today I think it's important because tomorrow I'm going to introduce you to an organization nobody talks about. Everybody likes to talk about the Council of Foreign Relations. Everyone wants to stop. Stop. If you know about the organization, it ain't that important. It's kind of important, but not really. So tomorrow we're going to talk about some stuff that you don't know about, no one's ever talked about, and, well, it's important you do. But before we do that, I think it's very important for us to just um, revisit what uh, the president had to say yesterday, for those of you that didn't watch it. And um, then we're going to jump into, uh, you know, the politics of obedience. And uh, this is quite important, very important. And uh, this is what they despise the most from the people, that you're not obedient Nobody, 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 nobody cares uh, about the masks. Masks aren't really a big deal. They don't save you from the virus. They save you from someone spitting on you or sneezing or coughing or whatever. But if they were really terrified, they wouldn't be around you. If you listen to all the Karens, they'll tell you, just follow the rules. And um, I came across a video. I think it was Stephen McGrew that... Um, that put it out. Cancel culture is one step from mass murder, mass graves. They will torture you. They will round you up and burn you alive as long as you keep talking. So the question is, why would you even care about living? Uh, I, I know it sounds dumb, but think about it. How many times have you seen the movie where the guy's sitting, you know, in his own filth and living just another day, just another day because they must? I'm just saying, right? It, it's sad. And I'm glad that someone uh, shared today on Telegram, and I, I'm going to read this out before we get to it. 
it, it is actually uh, one of my favorite writings by Lewis. It was um, a letter, an, an old devil's letter to young. One young devil asked the old man, how did you manage to bring so many souls to hell? The old devil answered, I instilled fear in them. Answers the youngster, great job. And what were they afraid of? Wars? Hunger? Old man says, no, they were afraid of disease. For this youngster, you know, does this mean that they didn't get sick? Are they not dead? There was no rescue for them? And the old devil man says, no, they got sick died, and the rescue was there. The young devil was surprised and answered, then I don't understand. And the old devil answered, you know, they believe the only thing they have to keep at any cost is their lives. They stopped hugging, greeting each other. They moved away from each other. They gave up all social contracts and everything that was human. Later, they ran out of money, lost their jobs, but that was their choice because they were afraid for their lives. That's why they quit their jobs without even having bread. They believe blindly everything they heard and read in the papers. They get up their freedoms. They didn't leave their own homes literally anywhere. They stopped visiting family and friends. The world turned into such a concentration camp without forcing them into captivity. They accepted everything just to live at least one more miserable day. And so living, they died every day. And that's how it was easy for me to take their miserable souls to hell. That was written in 1942. Kind of sounds interesting and very applicable to today. So with that in mind, let's take a listen to what our president had to say yesterday when he was on Newsmax. We are thrilled to have with us President Donald Trump, 45th President of the United States, and who knows, maybe a future President of the United States, too. President Trump, welcome back. How are you? Hello, Greg. I'm great. Thank you very much. You know, I asked you the last time, I'm wondering if you're thinking maybe a little bit more about it. You see, the country seems to be coming apart, especially at the border. Have you given any thought, any more thought to 2024 and you? Well, they're destroying our country. No, I haven't, because it's a long time away, unfortunately. But they're destroying our country. And, you know, look, we just can't let these things continue to happen. The border, whether it's the border or energy independence, look at what's happening with energy. Gasoline prices are going up like nobody thought would be possible. They were going down. They were at a level that they'd never seen before. And now they're going up. Uh, we're making Russia and Saudi Arabia and all the country, Middle East countries and others. And of course, the company Burisma, you know what Burisma is. We're making them rich and uh, we're becoming less and less energy independent. And within three or four months, we won't be energy independent. It's a very, very sad thing. And then the border, you look at that, it's uh, incredible to watch. You know, Joe Biden has not yet visited the border. Uh, he said he might get there at some point today. You saw him take that terrible tumble on Friday. I was surprised he went down not once, not twice, but three times. Almost no mention of it yesterday on the Sunday shows. I know that they gave you a hard time once when you walked a little bit slowly. Were you, were you as shocked as I was, or maybe you weren't? Maybe you expected something like that to happen. 
I expected it. Actually, when I went down the ramp at West Point, which was like a sheet of ice with no railing, no nothing, great planning, uh, I wanted to go inch by inch because the last thing I wanted to do is take a tumble like Biden did. No, that tumble was terrible. And it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't really one, it was three. And it wasn't mentioned for the most part, wasn't mentioned in the lamestream, as we call it, lamestream media, wasn't mentioned. It's terrible. It's like the whole thing is incredible. There's no longer freedom of the press. You mentioned once the 25th Amendment. People try to say that there was uh, consideration about using that against you. I thought that was just one of many unfair attacks against you. You brought it up and you thought it was something that Joe Biden would have to worry about. Do you think he's got to be even more worried about that right now? The way Kamala Harris has been lurking and almost seems to be calling the shots. You know, you know, he called her President Harris the other day. That's right. No, well, a lot of people said when they brought it out, because it takes a while to institute, and when they brought it out, they said uh, they really mean it for Biden, just in case he gets in. So we'll see. Look, I hope uh, that's a very serious thing, and I hope that never happens. But it's certainly, uh, there's something going on. It's crazy. What's, what's happening is crazy. And you wonder whether or not all of the things that he's signing, whether or not he understands what he's signing. Because this is worse than Bernie Sanders at its worst point. We never thought this this could happen. And Bernie Sanders uh, on steroids wouldn't be signing what this guy is signing. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some endorsements from you. I know you like Jody Heiss in Georgia. He's a congressman. He's running against uh, Mr. Raffsenberger uh, for Secretary of State down there. You know, some people think you're taking revenge on those who opposed you or made your life more difficult after the election. Well, Raffensperger has not done a good job, and the governor has been really missing in action. It's very sad because I gave the governor an endorsement, and it got him. It won him, it won him the election because then we beat Stacey Abrams together, and. Uh, and that was one. Jody Heiss is a fantastic man, by the way, highly respected congressman. That he's doing this as a patriot, I found out about it. I just found out about it. But that he's doing this as a patriot is an amazing thing, really. And he's giving up a total positive seat. I mean, he would win it very easily, always has. And uh, he's giving up a very uh, great seat in Congress in order to do this because he loves the state of Georgia. He loves Georgia. Mr. President, uh, Fox News political analyst Carl Rove is hosting a fundraiser at the end of the month for Adam Kinzinger, a never Trumper congressman from Illinois. How do you feel about that, that this uh, the Fox analyst is uh, is hosting something? I know you're no fan of his. He's no fan of yours. Uh, well, he shouldn't lately, be a Fox but... analyst. He, he shouldn't be a Fox analyst. Well, he was a fan of mine. He was a fan when he came to the office trying to get the 5G no, he was always a fan of mine, but I didn't give it to him. And uh, he lobbied for it and he fought for it. I don't know if he registered it to lobby. Maybe somebody should check that out. But he lobbied for it. But no, Carl Rove, if he's uh, going for that guy over anybody else, frankly, then uh, he's he's not a Republican. He's not he's not a good Republican. I'd, look, he's he's been a rhino for a long time. Bad news. Mr. President, uh, I hope I people watched... don't, and I hope people don't contribute. You know who's going to give to that? Democrats. <laughs> You'll have Democrats give. The Republicans aren't going to give. Democrats are going to give. Between Karl Rove and Kinzinger, uh, Republicans are—they're uh, not going to give. But plenty of Democrats will give. 
So we'll this see how they do. He's going to have he's going to have some good competition. More from President Trump when we come back. Hey, I'm Rob Finnerty. Thanks for watching. If you so that was his first part where he uh, kind of uh, outed uh carl rove and i think that was the uh, i uh, one of the most important i i don't think we need to cover the rest of it i think we should just jump into um what we should talk about and i think we should first start with the psychology of envy i found this really great video and and i say this because the psychology of envy and social justice so that way you understand why uh people um like uh you know the social justice warriors we see and the karens why they act the way they act or envy of others devours us most of all stretching back to the time of the ancient greeks countless philosophers have contemplated the nature of envy or what immanuel kant described as the tendency to perceive with displeasure the good of others. Those who have written about envy, be it Aristotle, Aquinas, Adam Smith, Schopenhauer, or Nietzsche, have all come to a similar conclusion. Envy is a destructive and diseased state of mind that harms not only the envier, but those whom the envy is directed towards, and society as a whole. But today the personal vice of envy has been made into a virtue by politicians. By manipulating the human tendency to envy, politicians have stumbled upon a very effective means of gaining power and control over largely unsuspecting populations. In this video, we will examine this phenomenon while also looking at the nature of envy in general, how attempts to enforce uniformity ironically only exacerbate envy, and how those afflicted with envy should, for their own well-being, strive to rid themselves of it. Envy is a directed emotion. In other words, it presupposes the coexistence of two or more people, the envier who experiences the emotion and the envied who is the target of the emotion. A good definition of envy is found in the 19th century Grimm's German Dictionary. Envy expresses that vindictive and inwardly tormenting frame of mind, the displeasure with which one perceives the prosperity and advantages of others, begrudges them these things, and in addition, wishes one were able to destroy or to possess them oneself. A common misconception is to confuse envy with indignation. In Aristotle's work, Rhetoric, he stresses the difference between the two concepts, writing, The indignant person feels anger at the prosperity of those who do not deserve it, and the envious at that of everyone. Or as he puts it more simply, indignation is felt at the well-being of evil persons, while envy at the happiness of the good ones. In contrast to envy, indignation is not a vice as it is rooted in a desire for justice. Envy, on the other hand, as Schopenhauer noted, is rooted in the inevitable comparison between our own situation and that of others. When comparison to another elicits awareness of our inferiorities, be it in terms of wealth, possessions, mental or physical characteristics, this can generate envy if we believe that what we lack in comparison to another accounts for our relative unhappiness. Individuals gripped by envy view those superior to them as enemies. Rather than focusing on improving themselves, the envious believe that their path to happiness is tied to the fate of those they envy. In other words, they believe that somehow their happiness will be increased if they can pull others down. A desire to see others brought down does not nurture a prosperous society. Instead, it hinders social progress. 
Those devoured by envy are not likely to become the great inventors, artists, writers, entrepreneurs, or scientists who help advance a society. Rather, they despise individuals of great talent, as their existence only makes the inferiorities of the envy-prone more obvious. The destructive nature of envy has made the use of institutions and practices to inhibit its impact extremely common throughout history. As Helmut Schoek states in his book Envy, A Theory of Social Behavior, No society can exist in which envy is raised to the status of a normative virtue. Even the superstition of simple societies sees envy as a disease, the envious man as dangerously sick, a cancer from which the individual and the group must be protected, but never as a normal case of human behavior and endeavor. Nowhere, with very few exceptions, do we find the belief that society must adapt itself to the envious man, but always that it must seek to protect itself against him. But disconcertingly, a dangerous perversion seems to be taking place in the modern world. Rather than relying on practices and institutions to inhibit the effects of envy, Gonzalo Fernandez de la Mora, in his book Egalitarian Envy, warns that Western societies are now being shaped by politicians who are stoking the flames of envy for the purpose of gaining power and control. So you know what's really funny, though? That those politicians that are stoking the flames of envy are the, are the actual people that they despise, right? It's the most bizarre thing you've ever seen, yet people are not smart enough. I mean, this morning I was listening to some random stereo chat where a guy was praising Obama. Praising him! And I was like, dude, the guy sold you out. The guy destroyed our nation. And I was like, dude, you're what's wrong with society. You can't see. You simply see color. That's how smart you are. Why? Not because you're stupid, but because you're uneducated and you're allowing them to tell you how you should feel. And this is it. They're making them envious of other people. Why are you envious of someone who's brown? black, white, polka dot, red. You shouldn't be. You're perfect just the way you are. And you have the same potential that everybody else has. Yeah, you may say, I was born in a more disadvantaged position. You may say, you had a bad childhood. You may say all of these things, those things season you like a good cast iron pan. They make you even better. They're not supposed to take you down. This is a relatively recent phenomenon, dating back to around the end of the 19th century and the rise of mass communication technologies. Before the emergence of these technologies, envy was directed almost exclusively toward members of one's own community. Someone living in Europe in the 17th century, for example, would be unlikely to envy the riches of an emperor of a distant land, as a condition for the emergence of envy is observation of the happiness of another. However, the rise of mass media changed this situation. Now we can intimately observe the lives of people we don't have personal contact with and thus make judgments about their happiness. Delomora explains the significance of this situation, stating, Contemporary people are subject to a massive supply of information through the mass media. Consequently, people can have opinions about the happiness of those they have never met or groups of people to which they do not belong, and as a result of these feelings, they may envy. This possibility becomes a probability if, as is habitual in the mass media, information is distributed already focused by a partial selection, an intentional editing, mystifying, or simply a bias that, in our case, is directed to bring out the differences among individuals.
One does not envy this or that person, but an abstraction, like the rich or the elitists. By promoting and appealing to this envy, demagogues can spark conflicts and make potential victims out of us all, for who will not find themselves inferior to an idealized group of people? But those who envy in this collective manner, and especially those who promote it, will never admit their true motives, rather as de la Mora states in a passage extremely relevant to the modern day. A contemporary disguise of collective envy is what is called social justice. How does this ideological argumentation run? A fundamental postulate is established that the more just a society is, the more equal its members are in opportunities, position, and wealth. And immediately it is established that the party will fight without rest to achieve such justice. But social justice, or the attempt to make us all more equal using the force of the state, will not bring about a society less prone to envy. In fact, as this unnatural uniformity is enforced on a society, new sources of envy will emerge which are far more pernicious. For example, if somehow all were made equal in terms of material wealth, this would not rid the world of envy. Rather, it would only mean that those prone to envy would direct their attention to other forms of inequality such as inequalities in mental and physical characteristics. Schopenhauer warned of this type of envy, writing that envy directed against personal qualities is the most insatiable and poisonous because the envious is left without hope. It is also the lowest type of envy, for it hates what it ought to love and respect. In addition to bringing more dangerous forms of envy to the fore, societies that fall victim to the demagogic call for more equality ironically see the growth of the most insidious form of inequality possible, a vast inequality of power between the ruling elite and the rest of the population. To make good on their promise to bring ever more justice to the world and ever more equality, governments must be granted immense powers to remake society. But with all that said, we can choose not to fall victim to this political ploy. Instead of viewing our inadequacies as reasons to bring others down, we can choose more constructive reactions such as emulation and self-improvement. Emulation occurs when the recognition of one's inferiorities leads them to view the superior not as enemies, but examples to learn from and figures of motivation. Instead of the desire to level all, emulation leads a person to lift themselves up to the level of the best, or even to surpass those they once looked up to. Kierkegaard noted that, Envy is concealed admiration, and thus emulation can be viewed as the positive reaction to what drives weaker individuals to envy. Reacting to one's inferiorities with the desire to improve oneself is not only good for the individual but for society as a whole. It means more people will focus on the creation of the new and the better, rather than on the destruction of others. But on the other hand, if our society continues to move down a path led by the envy-stoking rhetoric of demagogues, we will reach a point, according to Nietzsche, where people will become so resentful of others that even the happy among us will begin to question if they have a right to their happiness. All men of resentment, Nietzsche wrote, are these physiologically distorted and worm-riddled persons, a whole quivering kingdom of burrowing revenge indefatigable and insatiable in its outbursts against the happy, and equally so in disguises for revenge, in pretexts for revenge. When will they really reach their final, fondest, most sublime triumph of revenge? At that time, doubtless, when they succeed in pushing their own misery, indeed all misery there is, into the consciousness of the happy.
so that the latter begin one day to be ashamed of their happiness, and perchance say to themselves when they meet, it is a shame to be happy. There is too much misery. Just like it's a shame to be white. It's a shame to be smart. It's a shame to be successful. It's a shame to be smart. It's a shame to be blonde. It's a shame to be everything. It's a shame to love your country. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame. See, the political question that many people ask themselves, right, is why do people obey a government? And uh, the answer to that is pretty simple. Pretty simple. People tend to enslave themselves to let themselves be governed by tyrants. All right. Uh, and it's, it's a very hard truth, but it's, it's a reality, right? It's a reality. And it happens in all civilizations across the universe. It is until they realize that the potential is the same. But freedom from servitude comes not from any violent actions, but from the refusal to serve tyrants, right? When, the, when they fail um, to support the people and they withdraw their support. See, there have been so many civilizations that have risen and fallen based on that. Um, based on, you know, this perpetuated, uh, inhumane treatment of people. Language is very important in how we deal with the truth. Uh, because in the light of reason, uh, truth gets obfuscated. It does. It really does. And it's a great misfortune, um, you know, to have that happen. But you have to understand, it's a great misfortune to understand that, um, you're enslaved. People don't like to hear it, but you are. So this morning I was a little bit late for my show because I called a, a friend who's a, a gorgeous, heavy hitting, well-known, staunch attorney. And I was like, look, man, you know, all this time I've known that I, if I speak truth, um, you know, I'm tired of dropping things here and there and people finding things, you know, how, um, you know, and I, and I was told, don't worry, we'll defend you if they come at you because it's unconstitutional for Congress to create penal codes. You're going to be like, what? Yes. So um, there's some things that are going to be happening, and I, I know I'm not going to be going through some good things uh, during Red October, and and I, I trust that um, the right people will be around. Um, oh, I say this with such a heavy heart. But when you realize that um, there was always a struggle and always a fight, and while you were sleeping and people hate this when I, when I say it and I hate the word hate and I've always told you that out of all the sins they all stem from envy you don't get greed without envy you don't get gluttony without envy you're envious of someone that has a lot so you become a glutton that is the core sin I've said this before many times so um uh I knew I knew that um, I will be going through some things, but I, it'll be fine. Um, and, you know, I'm fine with it. 
I knew. I just didn't know the time. I thought it was going to be later. Um, but this is the time to do it. I mean, you can't imprison or criminally charge someone for exposing a crime that Congress committed, right? You can't. And it's been, it's going to be so weird because I actually thought it was going to be on the 20 year mark, right? I thought it was going to be on the 20 year mark. Couldn't be on the damn 19th year mark. And I'm like, because they messed up the way the time is, I can't do it on the 20th anniversary. So it sucks. It just, it really sucks. So maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll try to do it sooner rather than later. So what, what freedom is, is, you know, a lot of people say it's an inalienable right. It, it totally is. You have the right to freedom, but to maintain your freedom, that's up to you. Okay. It's not up to me. You know, a lot of people, I have freedom right now because there have been soldiers that have been willing to fight for them, right. To protect those freedoms. But in the end, it's up to you. If you don't support the soldiers, uh, they can't protect your freedoms. And if you don't protect a government that, um, uh, wants you to be free, well, then you're not going to be free. It's, 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 it's quite simple and, and very straightforward, Every single day that goes by, you see that people are becoming more obedient to um, to the government. And this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. We're not communists, right? And I'm just going to say something again. And I actually found someone. Uh, this I've been saying for many, many years. And I, I actually stumbled accidentally upon a little clip that someone else, because, you know, when I say it, it's just me saying it. And unfortunately, I know that my, my, my voice, my statements carry and merit. I know this, but do you know, unfortunately, people like validation, right? They like to be, uh, to show validation. And if you're the only one saying it, then it's not true, right? Totally is. I was the only one saying a lot of shit. That's always true. And I'm not saying it to boast myself. I'm trying to show you how truth in the end stands and the rest falls. And that's the way it is. So, um, uh, reality is just an illusion. And we've said that the reality that we have is because we all agree on that reality, right? Or else it wouldn't exist. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of excited to see this because all I did was see the title of this video, which clearly says reality is just an illusion that we agree on. I'm like, either this person has been listening to Tori says, or they're seriously woke. So let's, um, let's take a watch. 5% off your subscription. At some point in all of our timelines, the lights turned on for the very first time. It isn't clear exactly when or what it was like because that first moment of complex consciousness has long since lapsed our memory. But at some point, everything began to become some form of everything for the very first time. The world, or rather our mental construct of the world, began. And in this birth from nothingness into our subjective color of everything, we became both the creator and object of our worldview. We see the world not as it actually is, but how it is painted by this unique lens of consciousness. Inexorably bound to it, 
Our view and experience and understanding of everything is created by our interior experience, created by our consciousness, created by the natural world in a reflexive continual feedback loop. And so the world as it actually is exists, at least in some major part, behind a sheath of subjectivism. This is not to suggest the solipsistic stance that the physical world does not exist outside of consciousness, but that the particular image of the world we experience, this color, would not. We see the world not as it is, but as we are, wrote 20th century author Anna S. Nin. Ultimately, we are in something that we can seemingly only touch through a body and know through a conscious mind, forever prohibited from contacting it outside of our personally filtered experience of it, forever stricken to the methods of perception our brain allows or can create, forever condemned to the persistent illusions or hallucinations that come as a result. For good reason, likely this exact reason, one of, if not the primary distinct quality of our complex form of consciousness, appears to be its ability and desire to inquire about and into itself, the world, and the relationship between the two. It wants to know what things really are, how they are, and why they are. It wants to dig and dig and dig until it hits the innermost core and knows all there is to know, finally able to understand and control the mechanisms of existence, toppling or rising above the very substrate force through which it is made and freeing itself from the necessity of further inquisition. But what if in fact there is no such core to be reached? Or if there is, but cannot be reached by us? Of course, there are plenty of things we can know and be right about in plenty of different contexts. I can point to a blue pillow and say that the pillow is blue, and since most of us share eyeballs, optic nerves, occipital lobes, and human brains that generally function the same when it comes to visual processing, we can agree that I am right. However, we can't actually know that what we see is the same blue because we cannot see into each other's minds and know that, although we both agree that we see blue, we are actually seeing the same mental experience or qualia of what we are calling blue. This and all other problems related to the disconnect between our perception and what is really outside of our mind is known as the egocentric predicament, which is further extended and made more difficult when considering what is experienced in other people's minds by the concept known as the explanatory gap, which is the challenge in explaining the subjective experience of physical phenomena sufficiently well enough to translate what the experience is actually like to another person. And so, even here in this simple, everyday obvious example, we can't confirm that anybody is objectively right. Furthermore, someone who is severely colorblind might not agree that the pillow is even any type of blue at all. To them, if they do agree, they must agree not out of their sense of truth, but a willingness to sacrifice the truth of what they see for what the majority of the rest of the species sees and tells them. But fundamentally, are they really wrong if they say the pillow isn't blue? What if all humans were colorblind? Or what if the pillow is in fact a much more vibrant color of some other wavelength that we can't even imagine, let alone perceive? Wouldn't we all, who say it's blue, then be just as right or wrong as the colorblind individual who says it isn't? So I want to pause it for a second. Um, I shared the link to this video in the chats. So basically, we've covered this before. If people tell you that, you know, um, this is, you know, a square and you're looking at it and you're like, damn, that's a circle. But everyone's like, nope, that's a square. And everyone's like super square. What do you do? Do you say, nope, I'm standing by my truth. It's a damn circle. And all of you can go, you know, 
piss off <laughs> or do you yeah okay i guess it, it is a square right this is how reality is constructed this is why the mainstream media exists this is why they keep saying things that sound insane and you're just like yeah yeah uh-huh nope not nope not nope you have to conform you must be one with what we the overlords say it is then that's the problem your eyes see truth, you know, could be that that pillow doesn't even exist, you know, and it'll be at a point where you'll see that none of this exists. Uh, the reality is what you make it. And, I, and I've said this again and again, not to get all fruity on you and all vibey on you, but that's the fact. Uh, the reality is constructed. And then this is why good guys or whoever you think is a good guy can't understand real good because in their reality construct, they can't think outside the box. They can't. Even people who do good cannot think outside the box. A lot of people people uh just in in insist that there's got to be motivators somewhere something's got to motivate you something's got to why does it have to be anything but good even good people say that because that's a reality construct this is all to say that even though there can be derivative truths derived from sufficiently shared subjective experiences about which one can be right i.e the pillow is blue in the very same sentiment at the very same time, the same someone can be fundamentally wrong. And if somehow, suddenly, we could all perceive different higher wavelengths of color, and we all agree that the pillow was in fact not blue, then we would all also agree that anyone who still said it was would be wrong, even though the pillow in itself never changed. How many things in the conceptual atmosphere of political, moral, economic, metaphysical, and so forth are blue pillows? What are we all colorblind to? And what have we all agreed is true simply and only because we all agree that it's true? What is underneath all the different shades of blue, green, red, and all the rest? This is not to say that such agreements of perception and value judgments aren't majorly useful and sufficient in many, if not most cases. But it is to point out the off-putting fragility, or at the very least, malleability and abstractness of all of what we think is true. There are, of course, ways of measuring and getting closer to apparent fundamental truths of physical reality through tools, theories, and methods that supersede any sort of perceptual illusions, biases, and so forth. But also, of course, all tools must start and end through the first and final tool and method of the human mind. There is no way out of the mind, and thus, there is no way into the world as it actually is. And moreover, it would seem that if we could understand and explain what and how all the physical stuff of the material world is, we still wouldn't necessarily be any better off knowing what it ought to mean. And so, if all human truths are based on agreements of shared subjective internal experience, which are all limited inexorably by human perception, then we can likely never know if there even is a core of objective truth to be reached, or at the very least, if we conclusively ever reach it, if there is. And if this is the case, then would we not, in every effort towards such a goal of fundamental axiomatic conclusions of reality and truth, be endeavoring the impossible? And consequently, is not attempting to think and talk in generally true, objective terms also impossible? Not useless, but impossible in the absolute sense. So that's a that's a very, very, very uh, good statement right there. 
you know, if we all conclude to an object, uh, an objective truth about life, in essence, it's a subjective truth of the collective. So we don't want a group think, but we all think as a group. And, and that is the key here. We don't group think, we shouldn't group think, but we should all think as a group. That is a really, you know, confusing statement is to be or not to be. That is the question. And that's the thing. Are you going to be or are you not going to be? Are you going to be yourself or are you not going to be yourself? And the thing is, we've talked about this before as well. Society shapes who you are. Society constantly tells you who you are. Society puts you in a box. Society and those around you tell you and slap labels on you like it or not. Like it or not, they do. They do. No matter where you are, you're an infant, toddler, child, adolescent, teenager, young adult, middle-aged adult, over the hill, AARP card holder, whatnot, right? They just slap labels all the time. So independent thinking is actually dependent thinking because if you're independently thinking, you're dependent on thinking for everyone else. Uh, objective truths are those that affect all, not just you. Right. So if you know thyself, then and everybody else knows thyself, then everybody realized that their self is everybody's self. I hope that helped. <laughs> I hope that helped. Um, and um, that's 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 key here, because, yes, uh, the subjective reality that you have in your domain and the objective reality that you may have over your domain has to feed into the grander reality. And right now, common sense is what we call basic truths, right? What makes sense? It makes sense that nobody gives a shit what pigment your skin has. Totally makes sense. But they're telling you different. It makes sense to say, hey, the media is not talking about the Colorado shooting because it's not a white supremacist. And it turns out that it's probably a jihadi. Total makes sense. We understand the mainstream media is not going to report on it because it doesn't fulfill their objective of telling us, uh, you know, how we have to think and how we should be ashamed and how we should be ashamed for our color and our beliefs and wanting America to be free. Like, how dare you? That's what is common sense. So I guess common sense is when society agrees on objective truths. I think that's a great definition of what common sense is. What do you guys think? Let's see what else he says. It's pretty interesting, huh? If we cannot arrive at any grand, fundamental, objective truths to life, but we must build all conclusions, ideas, and discourse on top of some sort of foundation, this places discussion, thinking, and believing on a constantly shifting, unstable, and wide-spanning ground of various types of subjective, ideological worldviews. And this absurdity at the core of all worldviews likely then spiderwebs into the attempt to discuss and think about even relatively commonplace ideas built on or within such a system of thinking. This phenomenon potentially reveals itself when we confront another person who is so obviously wrong but has no idea how they could possibly be so, while at the same time is equally certain that we are in fact so obviously wrong even though we have no idea how we could possibly be so. Or perhaps when we confront a sudden breaking down of what we were so majorly sure about for so long, realizing that everything we believe, individually or collectively, is in fact entirely opposite to what is now apparently true. Yeah, like Einstein. His shit was bullshit. Light doesn't travel. 
Period. Let's just put that out there. This is learning if it ends, but some kind of madness if it never does. Of course, it is obligatory to mention that all of the aforementioned ideas could themselves be wrong. They might entirely oppose what you believe or feel you know to be true. But ironically, if anything, that would seem to potentially support the main point here. In either case, for the most part, knowing what the real color of things are, metaphorically speaking, is perhaps minimally relevant to living and thriving as an individual and collective species. Perhaps what matters is that we can agree on subjective things sufficiently well enough and cordially enough, often enough. And also somewhat ironically, it seems as though in order to do so, if such a feat is possible, the prerequisite is a willingness and embracing of often being wrong. Naturally and culturally, the desire to be right is a deeply enduring and forceful one. As often as possible, sometimes at all costs, and oftentimes in spite of good reason, we are both compelled by our psyche and pressured by our social circumstances to always be right. And when we aren't, it hurts. So much so that it can often create horrible sensations in the brain akin to that of real physical pain. And so, we of course try to avoid it, or at least admitting it, at all costs. And yet, it is impossible to avoid. And furthermore, it is possibly the case that fundamentally, we are never actually right at all. In the words of St. Augustine, I err, therefore I am. As a consciousness, in the form that we are born into, we are all put up against the imperative of our mind to desire absolute truth, while simultaneously the seeming imperative of the natural world that prohibits us from obtaining it. We will all cling to reasons and answers and worldviews just to have them smashed to pieces time and time again, whether we know it or admit it to ourselves or not. We will all likely not only be wrong often, but right rarely, even in the meta-subjective sense. And so, perhaps we can and must learn how to be okay with this if we wish to be okay with consciousness. Perhaps we must learn how to fundamentally be okay with being wrong, or we will loathe ourselves until the end. Perhaps we must love and accept the hypocrisy that runs through the very veins of the human condition, or we will hate all of humankind. Perhaps we must learn how to dial back our expectations and the degree in which we dread over the inevitable failure of everything we believe, and the beliefs of others just the same. This is not to make light of the immense challenge of such an arduous endeavor. It is an endless upward climb of surpassing one's default mode and understanding of the world. But perhaps if we can, at least some of the time, succeed in doing so, we can feel a little less embarrassed, disgusted, miserable, ashamed, bitter, angry, and all the rest. And perhaps we can be a little less wrong a little more often. And, you know, how do we do that? I mean, I, I've said this before. Every failure you've had, everything you've had to suffer for, uh, in your life, any wrong that has been done to you, any wrong that you have done, any mistakes that you have done, any falls that you have had, they should all be badges of honors, right? You should be wearing that and say, yeah, now what? Bring it. I'd been, been there, got the t-shirt, heard that statement before. That's how you learn by errors. But one thing that, um, wow, I was kind of blown away the way he put it was we all love to be right and it's okay to be wrong, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Truth, right, is what we seek or our purpose in life, which is the truth. 
And I am going to say this, it's going to sound very cliche, but I'm sure all of you have experienced it at one point in your life. Doing good to others makes you feel so good. It makes you feel so good. And doing that is the secret. And doing that without expecting anything, anything, not even a thank you in return, not even a thank you. You just do it. You know, and, and this is, this was my complaint, right? When, when, um, personally I struggled with it and boy, was I pissed. Everything I did, you know, uh, from filings to FOIA requests to lighting fires under people's asses, like even for the residents of a city called Minot in North Dakota, I did so much for them. And they maimed me. They maimed me. And I didn't want someone to say thank you. I didn't even want my name out there. I just wanted to do it because it's the right thing to do. And it made me feel good. I mean, b be honest. Would my mission in life be to make sure that someone who's 55, right, um, and, you know, has their own farm and house, pays tax, you know, an extra $3,000 in taxes a year? Why should I care? I'm not them. I don't even know what they look like. I don't know what they look like. They've never said hello to me on the street. They've never said anything. Why would I care? Because I care for them as a whole, not individually. And if we share our abilities, if you can fix trucks, right? If you have the skill to fix trucks and you know that if you drive around, I'm sure, you know, around neighborhoods and stuff, you'll find a truck that is in need to get fixed. And you break out your tools from your truck, you get under there, you fix it for someone. And that person, you know, obviously knows it doesn't work. And they start the car and they just get elated. I don't know what happened, but my truck is working. Oh man, you've just made their day a million times better. And, and you don't know them and they don't know you, but you did that and you felt good, right? It's just doing good because good is the secret. Serving others, your neighbors, your friends, your family, people you don't know is what's important. And put it in this perspective. I was watching the video from Project Veritas where there were hundreds of unaccompanied minors in acrylic cages on the floor with emergency blankets all sleeping, rolled up like pigs in a blanket. And I thought to myself, so many faceless, nameless children right there that have the potential to be anything. That have the potential to work wonders. There are surgeons in there. There are nurses in there. There are teachers in there. Mothers, fathers, right? And while everyone is like, oh, look, it's atrocious. Oh, look, it is. But I want you to think, look at all that potential.
when their timeline started in this reality construct, what they've been smacked with, right? Being used as pawns and thrown namelessly and facelessly into acrylic cages wrapped in emergency blankets, untapped potential being treated like political pawns where you have an administration saying, just send your kids to the border, man. We're good. Kids like that disappear. They have no social security number, no ID, no name, no face. And so when you do good, and this is how I saw it, anything that I've done, uh, is because I considered them faceless and nameless. Because if you do that, you just know you've made, like if you can stand on the moon and look down and you're watching the world on fire, you can drop a little bit of rain in one small section and you'll see it. That's your rain putting out a fire somewhere, somewhere where someone needed it at that point or didn't need it at that point right? It's kind of like how you guys got together and got me a car. Not only a car, I got my dream car. And I also have cash paying attorneys to file all this stuff I'm filing. I didn't expect that. Yeah, that was a little ember for me, right? Because I was renting a car. I didn't have a vehicle. I constantly had to swap it out, you know, and I constantly was just constantly changing vehicles, right? Then it was costing me a fortune and I couldn't go and get a vehicle because I couldn't save money to get a vehicle because I was spending so much money on renting a vehicle. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like it was life or death, but it made my life so much easier and it was completely unexpected. So someone rained on my fires, right? Not the raging ones and not the one that's going to be raging very, very soon for me, but on embers that made my life just a little bit easier. And if we think of it in a way that the truth that we seek, we find in servitude for others, it makes 1 million percent sense. I just think about that for a bit. Serving others in, in an anonymous capacity, name capacity, whatever. It makes you feel so good. You know, I remember my daughter, uh, my eldest one. She was about, what, 10, 11 years old. Um, and, you know, over the weekend, I would log into hospital systems, uh, DHS, and I'd be on call for whatever interpreting they needed. Usually if they call you on the weekend, it's someone stopped at the airport, someone getting arrested, you know, some fugitive or, you know, someone in the emergency room that can't speak English. And so I would sit there and, you know, sometimes it would be on speakerphone. I'm taking notes. I'm doing whatever. And, you know, she was like, you know, mom, we were supposed to be watching a movie. I was like, we can pause it. I'll, I'll let me finish this. And she was like, this job really stresses you out. It doesn't give you any room for yourself. You're constantly on call when you're on call. And it's just so sad. Like you could be in the bathroom and you have to pick up that phone. Like, why do you do that to yourself? That's extreme stress. And I said, do you know that when they call me, that person on the other end of the line is probably having a very bad day a really crappy day, right? A crappy, crappy day. And the fact that I made his crappy day a little bit easier or her crappy day a little bit easier, both like for the doctor and the patient, the police officer and, and, and the person arrested, uh, the person complaining, the person in court, whatever it may be, I just made their lives a little bit easier by facilitating the communication.
And I said, they're thank yous to this unknown voice that's simply a number, right, to them, you know, makes the world a better place. It comes back to you. That's like, you know, soul points. And, you know, she gets it now, now that she's almost 21. She's going to be 21 in May. You know, she gets it now. That's the thing. It, it makes you feel good. Like, yeah, okay, it was stressful. They'd wake me up at three in the morning, you know, to question a guy, find out where his family is. This is a true story. And it turned out he had like five dead bodies in his trunk. That was his family at the police station. And <laughs> dead serious. Or telling someone that they have cancer. Or telling someone their loved one died. Or whatever it may be. Or telling someone you can't enter the country when they're there to pick up the remains of their child. You know, these are really messed up situations. And you would think, boy, that takes a toll on your soul. It does temporarily because they're the ones that are living through that situation. But temporarily, you made it easier for them. And you serve them. You serve them. Obviously, yeah, okay, I get paid for it. But even if I wasn't, I volunteered many times. Shh. At courts, totally volunteer is pro bono. So it's not charged. It, it's important that we we learn little by little that by serving others, we do get the truth and the truth of, of, of what our point is here. It's, it, it makes you feel good because they feel good. Um, and that's the exact opposite of envy. This apparent impossibility of successfully thinking paired with the inability to ever not be thinking seems to beg the question, is consciousness a gift or a curse? or perhaps some combination of both. Perhaps the answer depends on whether or not all of this, the ability to be curious about and discuss things like the possible impossibility of ever truly being right, is worth possibly never being right about anything. And perhaps such a truth can only be answered by you. It is enough for me to contemplate the mystery of conscious life perpetuating itself through all eternity, to reflect upon the marvelous structure of the universe which we dimly perceive, and to try humbly to comprehend an infinitesimal part of the intelligence manifested in nature. Albert Einstein. So uh, again, voluntary servitude is um, basically it. If you're voluntarily serving others, you realize what is good. I mean, it's not just be kind to every person you have of kind. You can't because then you get upset right? So it's kind of like, well, this person pisses me off. I don't want to be nice to them. I want to be a complete bitch, right? I do. There's <laughs> there's a lot of times I'm like that. I'm like, no, I want to be mean. But then, you know, I'm going to feel guilty because I was mean, right? Um, I want to hold grudges. Ugh. I do. I do. There's only... Uh, there's only few times that I can say that I'm okay with holding grudges. You know, when I, when I had a discussion with myself um, two days ago on how I would move forward in, 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 in making like a, a statement, um, I, I actually thought, you know, these people are going to go you know, to places they don't want to because they thought that they were impervious to being held accountable. And, 
you know, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people can't understand it, but I have, I, there were moments of humanity that resonated from the usual suspects, you know, that made them human. And I felt bad for them. Um, I really did. Even though what they've done is atrocious, what they're still doing is atrocious. I, I, I still felt bad. And, and the only way that I can move forward is by being angry. And I don't like to maintain anger because um, it eats you alive. But um, yeah, servitude to others um, helps. Because tomorrow you're going to see, um, you're going to see that movies and government work together a lot. I'm going to introduce you to an organization that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, and the only reason I am talking about it is because a friend of mine said, do you know about this very, very good friend of mine? I was like, um, very well, actually. And because they said something and no one's ever mentioned that organization, I was like, okay, that was a cue to talk about it. And so you're going to learn about the organization that is from the inside out has been destroying this nation rapidly in the past few years, rapidly um, in the past few years. And um, I'm glad that my friend communicated that because how do you bring into conversation an organization that nobody talks about, right? How do you bring about a conversation about an organization that is almost a ghost, but everywhere? Everybody talks about the usual suspect organizations. And that's because that's as far as their knowledge goes because they have to hear about it to know about it. And if you're hearing about it, it's not that important. You understand? When they're that brazen and in your face, it's not that important. It's the ones they don't talk about. It's the ones that have, that have been talked about, but nobody's shown any light to it. Nobody thumped it. Nobody kept the light on. That's it. An organization that you're going to be like, what? And I'll introduce the organization with a movie probably so that way you can see it. But um, I hope um, that today uh, we are able to discern a little bit more in respects to reality and being able to discern fact from fiction and see things clearer. So on that note, um, I think we should um, get ourselves some coffee. Um, hopefully everybody can see clearly now. See you guys in a few minutes. I can see clearly now the rain is gone I can see all obstacles in my way 
Another dark clouds that had me blind It's gonna be a bright, bright, sunshiny day It's gonna be a bright, bright, sunshiny day I can make it now the pain is gone. Yeah, it'll be a sun shiny day when we understand a few things. And take a listen to this. About the strangest secret in the world. Some years ago, the late Nobel Prize winning Dr. Albert Schweitzer was being interviewed in London. And a reporter asked him, Doctor, what's wrong with men today? And the great doctor was silent a moment, and then he said, Men simply don't think. It's about this that I want to talk with you. We live today in a golden age. This is an era that man has looked forward to, dreamed of, and worked toward for thousands of years. But since it's here, we pretty well take it for granted. We in America are particularly fortunate to live in the richest land that ever existed on the face of the earth, a land of abundant opportunity for everyone. But do you know what happens? Well, let's take a hundred men who start even at the age of 25. Do you have any idea what will happen to those men by the time they're 65? These 100 men who all start even at the age of 25 believe they're going to be successful. If you ask any one of these men if he wanted to be a success, he'd tell you he did. And you'd notice that he was eager toward life, that there was a certain sparkle to his eye, an erectness to his carriage, and life seemed like a pretty interesting adventure to him. But by the time they're 65, one will be rich. Four will be financially independent. Five will still be working. Fifty-four will be broke. Now think a moment. Out of the 100, only five make the grade. Now why do so many fail? What has happened to the sparkle that was there when they were 25? What's become of the dreams, the hopes, the plans? And why is there such a large disparity between what these men intended to do and what they actually accomplished? When we say about 5% achieve success, we have to define success. And here's the best definition I've ever been able to find. Success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. If a man is working toward a predetermined goal and knows where he's going, that man is a success. If he's not doing that, he's a failure. Success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Paulo May, the distinguished psychiatrist, wrote a wonderful book called Man's Search for Himself. And in this book, he says, the opposite of courage in our society is not cowardice. It is conformity. And there you have the trouble today. It's conformity. People acting like everyone else without knowing why, without knowing where they're going. Now think of it. In America right now, there are over 18 million people, 65 years of age and older. And most of them are broke. They're dependent on someone else for life's necessities. Now, we learn to read by the time we're seven. We learn to make a living by the time we're 25. Usually by that time, we're not only making a living, we're supporting a family. And yet, by the time we're 65, we haven't learned how to become financially independent in the richest land that has ever been known. Why? We conform. And the trouble is that we're acting like the wrong percentage group, the 95 who don't succeed. Now, why do these people conform? Well, they really don't know. These people believe that their lives are shaped by circumstances, by things that happen to them, by exterior forces. They're outer-directed people. A survey was made one time that covered a lot of men, working men, and these men were asked, Why do you work? 
Why do you get up in the morning? Nineteen out of twenty had no idea. If you ask them, they'll say, well, everyone goes to work in the morning, and that's the reason they do it, because everyone else is doing it. Now, let's get back to our definition of success. Who succeeds? The only person who succeeds is the person who is progressively realizing a worthy ideal. He's the person who says, I'm going to become this, and then begins to work toward that goal. I'll tell you who the successful people are. A success is the school teacher who's teaching school because that's what he or she wants to do. The success is the woman who's a wife and mother because she wanted to become a wife and mother and is doing a good job of it. The success is the man who runs the corner gas station because that was his dream. That's what he wanted to do. The success is the successful salesman who wants to become a top-notch salesman and grow and build with his organization. A success is anyone who is doing deliberately a predetermined job because that's what he decided to do deliberately. But only one out of twenty does that. That's why today there isn't really any competition unless we make it for ourselves. Instead of competing, all we have to do is create. You know, for twenty years I looked for the key which would determine what would happen to a human being. Was there a key I wanted to know which would make the future a promise that we could foretell to a large extent? Was there a key that would guarantee a person's becoming successful if he only knew about it and knew how to use it? Well, there is such a key, and I've found it. Have you ever wondered why so many men work so hard and honestly without ever achieving anything in particular, and others don't seem to work hard and yet seem to get everything? They seem to have the magic touch. You've heard them say that about someone. Everything he touches turns to gold. And have you ever noticed that a man who becomes successful tends to continue to become successful? And on the other hand... Have you noticed how a man who's a failure tends to continue to fail? Well, it's because of goals. Some of us have goals, some don't. People with goals succeed because they know where they're going. It's that simple. Think of a ship leaving a harbor, and think of it with a complete voyage mapped out and planned. The captain and crew know exactly where it's going and how long it'll take. It has a definite goal. Now, 9,999 times out of 10,000, it will get to where it started out to get. Now let's take another ship. You are Just about like to hear. First, only let's not put a crew on it or a captain at the helm. Let's give it no aiming point, no goal, no destination. We just start the engines and let it go. I think you'll agree with me that if it gets out of the harbor at all, it will either sink or wind up on some deserted beach a derelict. It can't go any place because it has no destination and no guidance. And it's the same with a human being. Take the salesman, for example. There's no other person in the world today with the future of a good salesman. Selling is the world's highest paid profession, if we're good at it, and if we know where we're going. Every company needs top-notch salesmen, and they reward those men. The sky's the limit for them. But how many can you find? Someone once said a human race is fixed, not to prevent the strong from winning, but to prevent the weak from losing. The American economy today can be likened to a convoy in time of war. The entire economy is slowed down to protect its weakest link, just as the convoy had to go at the speed that would permit its slowest vessel to remain in formation. That's why it's so easy to make a living today. It takes no particular brains or talent to make a living and support a family today. So we have a plateau of so-called security, if that's what a person is looking for. But we do have to decide how high above this plateau we want to aim. Now let's get back to the strangest secret in the world, the story that I wanted to tell you today. Why do men with goals succeed in life and men without them fail? Well, let me tell you something which, if you really understand it, will alter your life immediately. If you understand completely what I'm going to tell you from this moment on, your life will never be the same again. You will suddenly find that good luck just seems to be attracted to you. 
The things you want just seem to fall in line, and from now on you won't have the problems, the worries, the gnawing lump of anxiety that perhaps you've experienced before. Doubt, fear, well, they'll be things of the past. Here's the key to success and the key to failure. We become what we think about. Now, let me say that again. We become what we think about. Throughout all history, the great wise men and teachers, philosophers and prophets have disagreed with one another on many different things. It's only on this one point that they are in complete and unanimous agreement. Listen to what Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman emperor, said. A man's life is what his thoughts make of it. Disraeli said this, Everything comes if a man will only wait. I brought myself by long meditation to the conviction that a human being with a settled purpose must accomplish it, and that nothing can resist a will that will stake even existence for its fulfillment. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, A man is what he thinks about all day long. William James said, The greatest discovery of my generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes of mind. And he also said, We need only in cold blood act as if the thing in question were real, and it will become infallibly real by growing into such a connection with our life that it will become real. It will become so knit with habit and emotion that our interests in it will be those which characterize belief. And he also said, If you only care enough for a result, you will almost certainly attain it. If you wish to be rich, you will be rich. If you wish to be learned, you will be learned. If you wish to be good, you will be good. Only you must then really wish these things and wish them exclusively and not wish at the same time a hundred other incompatible things just as strongly. In the Bible you read in Mark 9.23, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. My old friend Dr. Norman Vincent Peale put it this way, This is one of the greatest laws in the universe. Fervently do I wish I had discovered it as a very young man. It dawned upon me much later in life, and I found it to be one of the greatest, if not my greatest discovery outside of my relationship to God. The great law, briefly and simply stated, is that if you think in negative terms, you will get negative results. If you think in positive terms, you will achieve positive results. That is the simple fact, he went on to say, which is at the basis of an astonishing law of prosperity and success. In three words, believe and succeed. William Shakespeare put it this way, Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. George Bernard Shaw said, People are always blaming their circumstances for what they are. I don't believe in circumstances. So now, let's. Uh, that was uh, Earl Nightingale and uh, his, his um, writing slash monologue of The Strangest Secret. This is something we've been talking about together for over three years. And right now, we're in a place where the circumstances are dictating our ability to enjoy our freedoms, to enjoy life, and to have access to things. So um, how do you fix this? Because <laughs> you're going to fix this. There's no question. There's no fixing. In the United States of America, right, we govern. We are self-governed. No one governs us, okay? No one governs us at all, at all. We 
are the ones that govern. And what does that mean? That we create and we facilitate an environment that allows us to achieve those incredible goals we want. And like you said, we're in one of the richest nations and yet people fail. Why? Oh, you know, I was born in the ghetto. Oh, you know, I had an abusive father. Oh, you know, nope, 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 nope. You had it really hard. And it is our obligation as a society to help you achieve because how do we help you? We don't hand it to you. We don't say, oh, you, you were deprived. Here's the door. That's Harvard. Go. No, you have to work for that. You have to work for that because you know what? You're actually at an advantage to the people that didn't go through shit. That is a fact. People that have gone through things is like I said before, they're like a seasoned pan, right? They've already got the experience. They already have that badge. They've got an advantage. So when you see something that is fighting against you, you take it, you devour it, you own it. And you're like, yep, I just ate that. And that's another step in the bring it ladder. That is how we move forward. So right now we've got all the chips stacked against us. Let me speak for my state in Ohio. We have a governor that didn't issue any executive orders. In fact, he appointed someone who's unelected to do that for him. He decided that the Constitution of Ohio doesn't count. He decided that he's going to suspend the Constitution because COVID, right? He decided it. Done. I decide that all the businesses should close. Everyone should stay at home. You have a curfew because I said so. Constitution doesn't apply. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Hold on. That's not how it works. Well, what are you going to do about it? So you sit and you wait. Then they're like, now you got to wear face diapers because we said so. But they don't work against viruses, but they stop from people from coughing and spitting. So just follow the rules. Um, Hold on a second. That's not how it works either, right? Let's move it along. Stack, stack, stack. Well, what if I told you that the chips in regards to your elections, I have told you actually, have been stacked against you from 1999. Actually, they have been written into law, law that I helped formulate, law. So stacked against you. So now you're boxed into a wall with people that have immense access to funds to deploy shooters, Karens, monitor you, track you, kill you, set your car on fire, maybe dabble a little bit of thermite there, change the way your skies are, change the way you see things, the access of infrared. I mean, you're fucked. We're all fucked, right? We're fucked, right? No, we're not. What you need to do is take a stand back. Imagine that you're looking at it from the moon. Boy, do they look tiny. Hmm. See, the challenge of the governor wasn't a big deal, right? If you would have challenged him right away, maybe you wouldn't have had masks. But then something else would come up. Vaccines. You can't push experimental shit. Hello? Constitution. Hello? Nuremberg code. Hello. What the? So everything is stacked against you. Everything, everything, everything is telling you just submit. Follow the rules. 
And if you put your head down, maybe we'll let you live and let you shop in our store. And it's like, hold on a second, Walmart. You have a store in my state because you're supposed to abide by my state's laws and constitution. There's also a federal, you know, it's just like a major constitution for all of the states. You're violating both of those. Hmm. And then I have a governor, well, someone that they appoint that I've never elected, that's going to boss us around and tell us that we have to do it. Guess what? I know the Constitution said you, you should have guns, but you know what? We're going to say fuck that because look at all these shootings from people that we've paid to do this. Um, we need to collect that too. And you're sitting there and you're just like, all right, the, um, what you need to first realize is obviously the chips are totally stacked against you, right? But that's where you realize that you were never free. Once you accept the fact that you were never free, right? Huh? Then you're powerful. Then you know. These people want you out on the street with guns. They want blood to spill. That is exactly what they're doing. This is why they're stacking the chips against you. Because you're still under the fucking illusion that you're free. And you're not. You're not. But, but, on paper you are. And on paper, on paper, you could do a lot of damage. See, on paper they committed a crime... And on paper, they said, if you talk about this crime, we're going to charge you with a crime. I'm okay with that. That's another paper. So it's time to disappoint. And the only way you do it is by pushing forward. The only way you do it is by demanding. Huh, okay. Yeah, okay. So we're not free. Guess what? Slaves are revolting now. What are you going to do about it? I don't want to be enslaved anymore. I don't want to be enslaved anymore. When you realize that you are a slave and you were under the illusion that you were free, it becomes easier. The more you keep saying, well, as America, I'm free. You're fucking not. Because if you were free, all of this shit would not be happening right now. All of this would not be stacked against you right now. All of this would not be happening right now. And so why they are doing this is because there are a lot of you out there that believe you were free. There are a lot of you out there that refuse to face the truth. The shit we're in is because nobody was self-governing. You were comfortable because you fucked up. And bigger people that were smarter than you mesmerized the fuck out of you and you weren't paying attention because they already had it on the books that you're not free. They already had it on the books that they're going to screw you. They already had it on the books selling you out piece by piece putting neighbors against each other, picking and prodding at your weaknesses under the illusion that you're free. You're not. If you're not enslaved by their laws and their demands, you're enslaved by the media and entertainment. We've been saying this. See how you were enslaved these past four years? What? No, I wasn't. I was totally free thinking. Trump was, yeah, he was. But look at all the people that surrounded themselves suddenly got so massive when they were nobodies. They were literally nobodies. And they exploded. What? Quarter million people following someone for doing what? You don't see it? 
that they were artificially pumped. You don't see it, that the illusion is that if the, the, the majority thinks that you're good, then you're good. And if the majority thinks that you're bad, that you're bad, they're doing the same thing. It's the same damn thing. They're all assets, knowing, unknowing, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, you've been screwed. And while you thought you were getting freedom, that was also hijacked too. And everything they told you about freedom, rah, rah, was hijacked too. They mesmerize you in a junkie stop. They get to that point where they're down on their knees, right? Sucking off some dude for a hit. It gets to that point when nobody wants them and they're pooping on their pants and walking around hopelessly. It gets to that point that they overdose and they die and they come back to life. This is exactly it. This is where your idea of what you thought you had dies right here, right now. You realize you have been enslaved and you have voluntarily enslaved yourself. Not because you wanted to, but because you were too lazy to fight for freedom. I've said this before and I hate it when people say being free is an inalienable right. It's a right, but you got to defend that bitch right? Because there's a lot of other people on top of you that are more than happy to take it away from you. And while you're busy picking out your fucking backsplash and talking shit about your neighbor having an affair, they're taking it all away, all of it. So how do you get up? How do you fix this? The Q Warranto is one, right? We saw one filed. We saw the guy from Tennessee file his declaration of judgment. Damn, I'm so jealous because I, I was doing mine too. And I'm looking at his and I'm like, okay, I'm going to copy paste this now. His is way better because um, I was in the middle of it. I have a whole thing and I'm like taking it and rearranging it. How do you fix it? I told you you're still free on paper. I told you you're still free on paper. If you're still free on paper, you hold them accountable. But if I file in the court, uh, well, it's going to be a lot harder for a judge to justify violating the Constitution on fucking paper than it is with a newspaper and having the media pander it. A lot fucking harder. For all of you out there in Cuyahoga County, once I finish my declaration of judgment, you guys are going to copy paste it, put your name in, all that shit, all per, you know, pro se, and we're going to file it. We're going to have like 20 of those in Cuyahoga court. Identical. Each person. Different. We're free on paper. I told you that. Still there. I told you that still there. And all of you, I've already shared the declaration of judgment that Russell did in the state of Tennessee and filed it. Take it, copy it, paste it, use your state laws, verse yourself and file that shit. If every state got at least 10 in each county, they're screwed because the judge is going to have to answer. Judges have to answer on paper, dude. Judges are judged by paper. Judges are judged by law. They can't make law. They can't make law. They can't say, oh, yeah, he totally had the right to suspend your constitutional right. They've got to validate that. Nowhere in, in, in the Constitution does it say you have no right to be free and you are forced to wear a diaper and you are forced into experimental right, drug trials because we said so. Because this is where the judge has to decide. If the judge decides that the Nuremberg Code doesn't apply, damn, that's a real big fucking appeal right there. So we can do at least 10 people, right? I'm doing it. I'm almost done. I, I actually had to take mine, take Russell's, merge them, right? And I'm fixing it because I was hoping that I was going to file it, you know, right after the show today. I'm not because he just dropped that. And I'm like, damn, yours is so much better. And mine was so weak. And his structure is so good. Dang. So um, this is what we have to do. I mean, 
They can't force you. I mean, have you read the Nuremberg Code? Like, what? Have you read your state's constitution? What? It's like, how does a governor suspend the constitution? Like, what? It never says anything anywhere. So this is how we fix things. This is how we move ahead. I told you, and I've been saying it for a while, you're only free on paper on paper. So, oh, but what if I file it and they say no? That's okay. They have to say why they said no. They have to say why the Constitution doesn't fucking apply. They have to say why. See, that's key. Because that's where you tell the judge, all right, I'm calling you to the carpet. Answer this question. With what authority? Because I can't find it anywhere in the law. Shit, nowhere in the Constitution does it say, oh, you know, in the case of pandemic, you have no rights. In case of pandemic, you need to shut your own store down and stop working. In case of pandemic, you're just not allowed to see people. In case of pandemic, you can't walk around. Um, Doesn't say it. Doesn't even say that the governors have that right. So while everyone is complaining, right, we need to be doing right? You need to be doing. That's the difference between successful people and unsuccessful, the doers and the donors, right? That's the way it is. Yeah, okay, there's the exception of people coming from old money, getting, you know, a leg up, but boom, 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 boom. So uh, the, the draft for the Tennessee one has been posted on the Telegram. I shared it um, today. Take it, copy it, paste it, look at the laws he cited, and then find the equivalent laws within your state's code and constitution. That's all you have to do. And, uh, you know, for me, I actually had the Nuremberg Code um, put in there, too, uh, because they're uh, suggesting to allow businesses to force people to take vaccines. And if it's uh, experimental, hey, that can't happen. So on paper, you're free. That's the only freedom you have is what's on paper. Okay, let's walk that walk. Tomorrow, we're all getting together for the billboards. That'll be fun. And I know that Ohio already started fund. I kicked it off by donating uh, first. I, I They're all running it, right? You guys are doing it. I'm there with you. We'll help organize a concise message. The admins, all of us, it's going to be collective. But there's hundreds and thousands of us. Yep, that's what's up. And we can all find ourselves on the same page. That's the way it goes. So um, um, anyone, uh, I mean, I'll get with the Ohio group and find people, Cuyahoga County, um, and get your emails and, and send you my completed one. And then that's it. And then we file it. And it's like, boom, you know, boom. So find that and let's get going. I mean, guys. Let's not fall into the trap of self-deception. That's the next topic of today's Tory Says Show from the same amazing, uh, you know, person who taught us about envy today. So here we go. Take a listen. With all that which a person allows to appear, one may ask, what is it meant to hide? What should it divert the eyes from? How far does he deceive himself in this action? Humans are adept at deception. Throughout our lives, we deceive others as to our intentions, our beliefs, and our actions. But more impactful may be the ways in which we deceive ourselves. In this video, we will examine the phenomenon of self-deception, looking at why we do it, the dangers that arise from it, 
and whether we can rid ourselves of harmful deceptions and in the process improve our lives. Humans are imperfect beings. Each one of us is flawed in a diverse number of ways. We make countless mistakes, are unsuccessful in many of our endeavors, and are victims of numerous bad habits. Yet despite all this, we have a basic need to think well of ourselves. We want to believe that we are good people and that the path in life we have chosen is a noble one. The easiest way to reconcile our need for a positive self-image with the existence of our many flaws and shortcomings is through hiding our defects, both from ourselves as well as others. In this pursuit, we are often far more successful in deceiving ourselves than we are at hiding our flaws from those close to us. This has been expressed by many thoughtful observers of the human condition across cultures and throughout human history. A famous passage from the New Testament reads, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? While an ancient Japanese proverb conveys a similar message. Though you see the seven defects of others, we do not see our own ten defects. Deceiving ourselves as to our flawed character is sometimes referred to as internal masking. But self-deception takes another form called external masking, whereby we deny aspects or events of the outer world which pose a threat to our self-image. For example, someone who believes they are a well-liked person may remain oblivious to social cues pointing to the fact that others dislike them. The use of internal and external masking creates what can be called our noble lie. This is the fictitious story we tell ourselves to maintain a positive self-image in the face of our many flaws. While having a positive self-image is beneficial, problems arise when it is too reliant on the use of internal and external masking. For if our self-deceptions become too flaunting of reality, we become akin to an individual walking over a deep chasm on a poorly constructed bridge. The chasm was life itself, wrote Leo Tolstoy in his book Anna Karenina, the bridge that artificial life. While the bridge of our self-deceptions may hold for many years, we always face the risk that the bridge will break and we will be forced to confront the chasm of life which after years of lying to ourselves and denying, rather than dealing with our weaknesses, we will be ill-equipped to cope with. There are many instances in every life where one's self-deceptions begin to falter, presenting an opportunity to break down the false self, a process which, while difficult, is extremely beneficial in the long run. However, at such times, faced with the terrifying prospect that one's character was in many ways built on a lie, it is far more likely that people will flee further in the opposite direction, piling deception on deception. To do this, we run to the comfort of our daily routines, busy ourselves with social concerns, accumulate more material things, and turn to the security of conformity. There are insects that protect themselves against attackers by raising a cloud of dust, wrote Kierkegaard. Likewise, man instinctively protects himself against the truth by raising a cloud of numbers. While conformity and the playing out of social roles can help shore up our bridges of self-deception, this may in the end turn out to be more of a curse than a blessing. For given the brevity of life, it is far better to become aware of our deceptions while we still have time to change. But sadly, it is often only when one is at death's doorstep that they come to recognize the vanity and falseness of their existence up to that point. This idea is illustrated in the death of Ivan Ilyich, one of Leo Tolstoy's masterpieces. The main character in this work is a Russian magistrate 
who attains great success in rising to the top of Russian society. However, while enjoying the fruits of his labors, he becomes afflicted by a terminal illness and reflecting deeply on the meaning of life, is haunted by a nagging feeling that his life was wasted. It is as if I had been going downhill while I imagined I was going up. And that is really what it was. I was going up in public opinion, but to the same extent life was ebbing away from me. And now it is all done and there is only death. This passage by Tolstoy strikes at the root of the danger of living at the mercy of our self-deceptions. Maintaining our illusions requires a massive amount of time and energy and often diverts our attention to vain pursuits. Therefore, our ability to engage in projects and strive after goals which would lead to a more fulfilling life is greatly restricted. To ensure that we don't face a similar fate as Ivan Ilyich, it is crucial that we take a more honest look at ourselves and the life path that our deceptions have led us down. While most of us have spent years, if not decades, relying on our many self-deceptions, it is still within our ability to break down our false self. Self-deceptions are rooted in beliefs which at some point in the past we seriously entertained, as it was awareness of our faults and the pain that accompanied them that produced the deceptions in the first place. Thus, deep down it can be said that we all know the manner in which we deceive ourselves. Nietzsche suggested that one way we can make our faults more palatable is by viewing the development of our character as analogous to the creation of a work of art. In its initial stages, a work of art contains numerous flaws. However, an artist who deceives himself regarding these flaws never creates anything of worth. Instead, a true artist must learn to observe the flaws and make the necessary corrections. Some flaws may be beyond the artist's ability to correct. But instead of pretending they do not exist, the artist can strive to find a purpose for them that contributes to the work as a whole. In a similar vein, with an awareness of our own flaws, like an artist, we can attempt to overcome them, or when this is not possible, accept them and see them as an expression of our uniqueness. To give style to one's character, wrote Nietzsche, a great and rare art. It is practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses of their nature and then fit them into an artistic plan until every one of them appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye. To succeed in this approach, according to Nietzsche, we should sculpt our character under the constraint of a single taste, selecting a life project to act as a guide for our creation. Without this constraint, we run the risk of losing ourselves in possibility, that is, of becoming overwhelmed by the myriad of choices regarding what to do and who to become. But before we can choose an appropriate life project, we must become aware of the weaknesses and flaws our deceptions are masking. For a clearer vision of who we are will allow us to survey what options are realistically open to us. So the seeker of his truest, strongest, deepest self, wrote William James, must review the list carefully and pick out the one on which to stake his salvation all other selves thereupon become unreal. In bringing to fruition this new self of our creation, Nietzsche suggested that the use of deception may still be required. However, the deception in this case would not be rooted in the need to mask our weaknesses, as this only leads to stagnation. Rather, in becoming what Nietzsche called the true poets and continuous creators of life, he advocated the use of a subtle form of deception as a tool to initiate our transformation into the self we are striving to become.
Nietzsche understood that very often it is our actions which precede a change in our emotions and belief structures. Thus, if one is striving to remake themselves, initially they will need to act in a somewhat fraudulent manner. Or in other words, they will need to act as the person they have not yet become but wish to be. Or as Nietzsche advised in Human, All Too Human, when someone fervently wants for a very long time to seem something, it will eventually be difficult for that person to be anything else. The profession of almost everyone, even of the artist, begins with hypocrisy, with an imitating from outside and a mimicking of what works effectively. One who always wears the mask of friendly expressions must eventually gain power over benevolent moods, without which the expression of friendliness cannot be affected. And finally, these moods gain power over him, and he is benevolent. There is no doubt that taking this route and trying to remake oneself is risky. It requires enduring great pain in the unmasking of our self-deceptions and opens us up to the potential for ridicule. However, the alternative of remaining on the shaky bridge of our self-deceptions may in the end entail far more suffering. For like Ivan Ilyich in Tolstoy's novel, we risk wasting our life and only coming to the realization that we were in fact going downhill, as Tolstoy put it, rather than up when it is too late. Thus, while we still have time to change, we would be wise to heed the advice of the great Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. Above all, don't lie to yourself, he wrote. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. Well then, that's pretty interesting. Now, before we close today's show, I wanted to remind you guys that um, one of my favorite books, obviously, is The Art of War. And um, when war is being waged, it is key that we understand that there are nine situations to where you deploy war. And this is where you understand how and why you pick certain battles and you pick certain wars. <laughs> battles, not wars. The war is the great one. The battles are the ones you pick. There are nine types of situations that you can find yourself in, right? So one of it is that there's dispersive ground. Um, when you're fighting in your own arena, right? When Well, when... You're fighting in their arena. It's dispersive. So if you're going to be fighting them the way they're fighting you, you lose. Period. You lose. You don't fight on grounds like that because it's their turf. Right? So that's one. The dispersive. Right? You'll lose. No matter what, you're going to lose. Um, on facile ground, right? Um, you don't stop, right? You do not stop. When you get to that kind of territory, right, where it's easy, apparent, you don't stop. You keep going, right? And where is the easy territory? Think about that for a second. You have to think of where the easy territory is, where the easy territory is. What's considered easy? 
Now, in an environment which is called contagious ground, you don't pick that battle. That is the worst thing ever. Because if one side is more advantaged than the other, right, or whichever side, you're fucked either way. Kind of like rallies or marches or mass protests. Yeah, you're in numbers and you're bigger and better, but they've got money and a lot of infiltrators and you're fucked. So that's where you don't pick that battle. You're just like, yeah, so I'm going to avoid that. I'd prefer not to get that done, right? So then there's ground where each side has the liberty of movement. So that would be considered open ground. Uh, the one thing you don't do on open ground is try to block your enemy. So what does that mean? In the sense of politics, what would you consider open ground? Right? Don't get in their way while they're fucking up. Basically, let them do their thing. Do not block which way they want to go. So what are you seeing them do right now? They're, for example, trying to unseat someone in New York for six votes. Don't block them. Let them do it. That's open ground. While you're contesting other elections, let them contest away. You can't contest one and not the other. You know, that's open ground. I'm just giving kind of, you know, some you know, context. And there's the fifth one, which um, is pretty interesting. It's uh, a ground of intersecting highways. This is where you join forces with others. This is where the left meets the right, the right meets the left, and everything in between. And guess what? Whoever brings the left and the right together first, wins. Now think about it. Is there anything that the other side is doing that's bringing the sides together? Fuck no, there isn't. So there's another kind of ground we want to conquer first because then we win, right? Hence the billboards. Hence the come to us. Hence the we're not going to sit there and be like patriots, da-da-da, this, this, because those are trigger words for people that have been conditioned. You have to understand that these people have been conditioned, right? They're hostile to words, but they are not hostile to truth. Because truth, well, they are, but it depends how you give it to them. Totally depends how you give it to them. So... Another one is serious ground, okay? When you're on serious ground, you get in and you plunder the shit out of it. You know when you're on serious, serious ground? When you're at the heart of the hostility. Where is the heart of the hostility right now? Right now. Where is the heart of this hostility that we have in our nation right now? It's in the fucking court systems. That's where you go. You see why you can use that? Think art of war. Think how to put it together. Think that's how you do it. Serious ground is the courtroom. And even Sun Tzu says when you're at the heart of the hostile country. So when you're at the heart of the hostile deep state, that's the court. You get in, you gather in plunder. That's what you do. That is what you do. You get into that core and you're like, yep, that's what I'm doing. Another one is difficult ground. Difficult ground is when you're moving it up, 
She wore toes, right? Um, contesting your state legislators, right? That's that's an uphill battle, right? That's not the core of it. That's the periphery. And on that one, you got to march slowly but surely. You know, you attack your secretary of state. You attack this. You attack that. Because I'm going to tell you what. The reason that I got with a lawyer today, um, and she's amazing, was because I know why the secretary of state will not provide me the escrow agreement. <sighs> but yeah. So difficult ground, you just keep slow and steady moves, moving along, it wins the race. You just got to plow through it, kind of like, oh, I just got to, you know, go through it. Another one is hemmed ground. Hemmed ground is when they've got you boxed in, kind of like with these masked things, right? That's, uh, that's another type of battleground. You're in masks. You've got all the chip stacks against you, Right? Uh, you had a, you know, you're in there from some really messed up place. And, um, you know, you're small in numbers. So, you know, what you have to do is just strategize when you're in a position like that. And that's going back to what? Serious ground. Like I said, we have to pick our battles. The last one on Sun Tzu is on desperate ground. Grounds like that can only be saved from destruction by fighting without delay. Desperate ground. When you're on desperate ground, you fight. Now, serious ground and desperate ground seem to be synonymous for us. The court systems are desperate right now. This is desperate ground. If you don't fight in there, if you don't force their hand, which is the heart and soul of the corruption, you lose. So Sun Tzu even says, find your serious ground, you get in there and you plunder. Find, right, find your desperate ground, you better fight, fight, fight. And here's where you're at. And they then they are synonymous. So this is Sun Tzu, two grounds of his art of war strategy being one. You understand, this is why you have to hit hard. The rule of law may have been lost in translation, right? May have been lost in translation, but it's still on paper. And things that are done in unconstitutional ways, judges can't do that. They get removed from benches. It's no joke. Okay? So that is what people need to remember. Now, I wanted to um, end today's um, show with a two-minute sound clip of Hannah Arendt. It's quite interesting. This is from 1964. Take a listen. Ich möchte in diesem Zusammenhang, Frau Arendt, Ich habe nie in meinem Leben irgendein Volk. Okay. I'd like to go in a, into a personal statement you made. I'll read it out. You said, I've never in my life loved any people or collective group. 
neither Germans nor French nor Americans, nor the working class or anything else of that sort. In fact, I only love my friends. I'm completely incapable of any other kind of love. In particular, the love of the Jews would be suspect since I'm Jewish myself. Can I ask something? As justified and respectable as this attitude may be, does not man as a politically active being need a commitment to a group? A commitment, oops, sorry. Let me just, a commitment which then can to some extent be called love. Do you not worry your attitude could be politically sterile? No, I'd say the other is politically sterile. We can have a long colloquium on this. To belong to a group in the first place is a natural condition. You belong to a group by birth, always. Now, to belong to a group in this second sense, that is an organized group, that is something entirely different. This organization always has to do with one's relation to the world. That is, people who become organized have in common what are ordinarily called interests. So that the interest here between them genuinely involves a relation to the world. The direct personal relationship in which one can speak of love, it exists, of course, first and foremost, in actual love. And it exists in a sense of friendship, too. Here, a person is directly addressed, independent of their relation to the world. So we can say that people from quite different organizations can still be personal friends. But if one confuses these things, if one brings love to the negotiating table, to put it rather bluntly, I find that absolutely fatal. You find that, you find it apolitical. I find it apolitical. I find it wordless, worldless. And I genuinely find it to be an absolute disaster. That, my friends, are very, very, very wise words. Because this is exactly what we're seeing now in society. They are bringing love to the table to make it political. And like she said, right, like she said, we can still have conversations and love people because it's our direct relationship. It's not how interests are formed in relation to the world. And disaster comes when you marry the two. Mm, so um, for those of you that don't know her, you should. She was actually quite smart. Uh, and, you know, made some really good points, uh, considering, um, how outspoken she was at that time. I mean, 1964, she's having a cigarette while she's being interviewed. I mean, how about that? That was so cool. So on that note, um, I'm going to bid you guys a wonderful afternoon, uh, and evening, and I will see you tomorrow, same time, same place. And for those of us on the other, uh, channels, I try to success. I, I had a raid yesterday. It was a little bit weird on Trovo, right? Um, not much to pick from, <laughs> but we're getting there. And, um, for those of you on Twitch, we're going to be raiding as well. I'll see you guys tomorrow. God bless.
If I could turn the page And time that I'd rearrange Just to fail to Close my, close my, close my eyes But I couldn't find a way So I settled for one day to believe